Let's now turn to Second Chronicles chapter 16. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. They attacked Ijon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. Now it happened when Baasha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. And at that time Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria, and have not relied on the Lord your God, Therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly. Therefore from now on you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the thirty-ninth year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients, prepared in a mixture of ointments. They made a very great burning for him. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but this chapter affects me in a way that Second uh, Samuel 11 does. Second uh, Samuel 11, you know, records uh, the sin of David in his uh, arranged murder of Uriah the Hittite so that he could take his uh, wife to himself. And uh, it records his terrible sin of adultery and uh, murder. And uh, when we read such passages, it makes us sad. It makes us sad at the sins of godly persons, godly leaders, who show such unfaithfulness to the Lord. It makes us sad about our own sins as we realize that we also, who know better, often sin contrary to the grace and the mercy that God has shown us. Asa was a loyal-hearted king. That's really at the, the theme of our consideration of his reign in the last few weeks. God's gracious gift of a loyal-hearted king. 
But when you read chapter 16, it doesn't really look like it, does it? It's like chapters in our own lives. And we might uh, wonder what to make of Asa's reign in view of the record of how it ended, in view of the record of these serious faults that are recorded here in uh, chapter 16. What do we make of it? Well, very briefly, by way of introduction, for one thing, we, we must be honest about those failures. We don't want to deny them. Uh, we don't want to gloss over them. We don't want to exaggerate them. But we want to take them as they stand in the record of God's Word. Secondly, we have to be careful that we uh, don't draw the wrong conclusions from them in a way that uh, would be too pessimistic about Ace's life or, on the other hand, uh, minimize the seriousness of these things. And certainly we must take warning from these uh, accounts of his failure. Let him who thinks he stand uh, take heed lest he fall. Those were words written to Christians in Corinth. But we also need to see where this account of failure yet uh, directs us to the grace of God. We need to see how this passage also calls our attention to the grace of our covenant-keeping God. And I want to capture something of that in our theme this morning, that God's grace isn't withdrawn uh, despite serious disloyalty. And we're going to begin by looking at these failures of Asa. Uh, and we're reminded even, even uh, at this point that the fact that Asa was uh, loyal-hearted, uh, blameless even in uh, terms of the language that's used uh, in uh, the authorized version, for example, that, that kind of perfection... Uh, doesn't mean sinlessness, far from it. And there are four instances of uh, failure in this account before us, uh, beginning with uh, Asa's incomplete reform. Actually, we're backing up a little bit uh, to the, the, the previous chapter that uh, records a failure in verse 17 when it says, but the high places were not removed from Israel. The high places were not removed. Now those high places, these were, these were places of worship. These were shrines. And as the name indicates, they were, uh, characteristically, uh, formed on an elevated place. And, uh, in that sense also, reflecting the influence of, of heathen worship found among the heathen nations. Uh, but these were places of, of unauthorized worship. And, uh, we're given actually an account of Asa's reform with respect to high places in chapter 14 where it says, uh, he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. In verse 5 it says, he also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was quiet under him. So Asa did remove high places. Uh, very likely there was a distinction between those high places that were used specifically for the worship of pagan gods. And uh, it also says that he removed high places from the cities of Judah, 
where the text makes reference to high places in Israel, maybe those places that were under his jurisdiction that he uh, could have uh, reformed, but he neglected to do so. And furthermore, he may have uh, neglected to take down those high places where, where sacrifices and incense were offered to the Lord, though in the proper place. They were not offered in the place where God had put his name, formerly in the tabernacle, now in the temple. So in that sense, it was improper that these high places should be allowed to remain. Asa failed to remove them. Secondly, we're given this account of Asa's treaty with the king of Syria. Syria, this heathen nation to the north of Israel. Baasha is the king of Israel, those ten tribes that were separated from Judah and Benjamin. And Baasha had staged a military coup against the house of Jeroboam. And as was often the case, the king was overthrown by military power, and Baasha... Uh, made himself king. And uh, he made incursions against Judah. He built a fortress at uh, at Ramah. We're told of that in verse 1, that uh, he built this uh, fortress in Ramah that he might let none go out or come into Asa, king of Judah. Now that may have reference to that spiritual reformation and revival that we considered last time at which many people from Israel, they they came to Judah. They saw God's work among them. And the king of Israel likely saw this as a threat, as a threat over his control. And so he tried to put a stop to it by uh, erecting this fortress and starting to build there at Ramah. But in response, what does Asa do? He persuaded the king of Assyria, or Syria rather, uh, to break his treaty with Israel in order to side with Judah against Israel. And we're told how he did it, which involves a number of serious failures when you consider it. He took the gold and silver that he and that others had dedicated to the temple of the Lord, and he used that that money to bribe uh, the the king of Syria, to bribe him to basically break his word with Israel, to break a treaty with them. In effect, he sided with the enemy against a brother, a brother that had been alienated, but yet a brother still, and a brother who would suffer the consequences then, because the king of Syria then would attack these northern cities in Israel. And no doubt many people were killed because of it. And Asa had a hand in it. And then we're told that Asa refused to listen to the Lord's rebuke. God sent a seer, that's another word for a prophet. He sent the prophet Hanani to confront Asa with his foolishness and and unbelief, and instead of humbling himself and acknowledging his fault, he became angry, and he put him in prison, along with some others who may have also expressed similar disagreement with Asa's actions here. And then fourthly, one more, we're told of Asa's reliance on physicians instead of the Lord. He became diseased in his feet, his malady was severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. And we ought not to conclude that the fault here lies in the fact that he sought help from doctors. I don't believe the fault was that uh, he was seeking the use of some means for his recovery. Even when God uh, was going to miraculously heal Hezekiah, when his life was threatened by uh, some uh, serious malady, 
the Lord prescribed that Isaiah take a lump of figs and put it on the boil and he would be healed. And so even in that instance, the Lord prescribed means uh, used for Hezekiah's healing. So the problem was not that he uh, resorted to any means, but his fault was in trusting them and trusting in them instead of trusting in the Lord. Now, very briefly, this is a kind of a, a summary of these failures, and we'll return to some of these features. But already at this point, we might say that if this is all that we knew about Asa, we would hardly think of him as a godly king. And we're reminded again here, aren't we, that the Bible doesn't ignore the sins of God's people. Even as those who in other respects serve as positive models of faith, they're imperfect. And even the 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 honesty, the truth of Scripture and the Holy Spirit's inspiration that records also the faults of godly men and women, we may take as an encouragement. For one thing, we're reminded of the grace of God to these people, that they were his children despite their sins and failures. And that encourages us in view of the reality of our, of our own sins and failures. And we can also see God's grace in the fact that he gives warning to us also by such accounts so that we might learn from them. And that's what we want to look at. Secondly, we want to consider gracious warnings to us. Uh, these things were written for examples to us. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians with reference to Israel's wilderness experience where they became guilty of of sexual immorality and murmuring against the Lord and unbelief and disobedience and idolatry. And they are recording also for our, for our admonition, for our warning, so that we might avoid those things, that we might not repeat them. Next Sunday, the Lord willing, we're going to gather at the Lord's table and we're going to read a form of preparation that calls us also to examine ourselves in light of preparing to come to the Lord's table and remember his death for us. And that examination involves an inquiry with respect to our own lives so that we might examine ourselves uh, to discern whether we are uh, practicing ways of disloyalty to the Lord so that we might repent, that we might seek God's mercy. And uh, we can see uh, such faithful warnings as, as we give attention to this passage, it's good to examine ourselves in the light of Asa's failings. In fact, there's a kind of universal application that, that the prophet Hanani makes in verse 9, where he says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He doesn't simply say, Asa, the eyes of the Lord are on you. And the Lord knows whether you're going to be faithful to him. No, there's a universal uh, uh, application, if you will, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is always seeking out, if you will, those who demonstrate a covenant loyalty to him so that God might show his blessing and his strength on our behalf. Now, that's a very positive encouragement, isn't it? To be faithful to him to be, be faithful in small things as well as big things, to be faithful in private things as well as in public things, because the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and he greatly cherishes and values his work of grace in God's people, and he rewards them richly. 
And that's a positive encouragement, isn't it? To seek to be loyal to the Lord. But right along with that, it's an encouragement to avoid those kinds of disloyalties that we are so much prone to, that Asa was guilty of here. Grace comes with faithful warnings. And that too is grace, isn't it? And we're going to look at uh, these specific warnings here uh, in, in some, some detail in order, beginning with a warning against tolerating sin in our lives. There was a toleration of uh, the high places that uh, uh, had been built. And uh, Ace's toleration of these high uh, places um, makes for a kind of qualification that Scripture gives in connection with Asa's zeal. Asa was very zealous for the Lord, and Asa accomplished many significant reforms and was a true and great blessing to God's people. But then we we hear that little word, but, the beginning of, of uh, verse 17 in chapter 50. But the high places were not removed from Israel. And there's a warning to us in this uh, connection, brothers and sisters. Never to give up fighting against those besetting sins that we struggle with. Never to simply tolerate them and grow accustomed to them without confessing them, without praying for God's grace to pardon us and to strengthen us in our battle with, with sins that, that may not be so egregious, may not be so observable, recognizable, respectable sins. I know the young people and some of us studied this book of uh, respectable sins, sins that are quite common among Christians. We might say, let it not be said of us. You know, she was a, a godly woman, a sincere Christian, but she was kind of inclined to gossip. gossip. Let it not be said that he was a, a, a solid Christian man with a good reputation, but he, he did have kind of a temper. He was a good father, but he tended to be a little bit harsh or a little bit uh, indulgent. No, very likely people will not say such things because the godly like to also cover over and and ignore sometimes the sins that they see in one another, right? But though they may not be spoken, uh, they may be true, and uh, we ought never to give up our battle against our own besetting sins, the kinds of sins that are like the dead flies that kind of make uh, the the uh, anointment or perfume to give out a bad smell. We know that in the qualification for office bearers, elders are to be blameless. Again, that doesn't mean that they're to be perfect, but they are to be above reproach in the sense that there is to be no no glaring offensive uh, character flaws that would, that would cause stumbling and be a, a hindrance to their service. But that's simply a description of mature Christianity that we ought to all strive for, a kind of maturity that keeps us in this spiritual battle against our besetting sins so that we don't make peace with them, but we continue to um, seek to grow in grace, realizing that we may be battling these things our entire lives and we may never overcome them entirely. In fact, we won't, right? That's why the godly apostle in his uh, description of struggling with sins, is the things that I hate, I do. The things that I want to do, I I don't do. 
Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He was still in the battle, but he knew that ultimate deliverance would come when Christ appeared and he was completely sanctified. But we need to continue to fight against those sins. And then secondly, there's a warning against ingratitude and unbelief. And you might say that this really is at the heart of, of Hananiah's rebuke there in verse 8. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered that image, them into your hand. It's like the prophet says, just remember your own experience, Asa. How you called upon the Lord and he rescued. God could, could keep Israel at bay. God could keep Syria at bay. And if they attacked you, God could defeat Assyria and Israel. Easily, you were forgetful and ungrateful. You resorted to worldly means. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The writer to the Hebrews exhorts the Christians there to recall former days, former days in which they had exhibited a kind of loyalty to the Lord, a kind of zeal for his name. And he reminds them of that blessedness that, that they knew. So we must not let the passing of time, we must not let the busyness of our lives or other things desensitize our hearts to God's grace and mercy to us. Don't let outward prosperity or health, whatever form those blessings might take, don't let them blind us to a kind of spiritual impoverishment that can encroach upon our lives. Remember that Ace's scheme was successful, right? I mean, he made this treaty with Assyria, with Syria, and uh, they attacked the northern tribes, and Baasha uh, retreated from Ramah, and uh, they were able to, able to take all the provisions and supplies from this abandoned fortress, and they built two towers to protect their borders. God must have blessed that plan. No, we must not take prosperity or peace or success as a sure indication of God's blessing if what we're doing is contrary to God's will. You know, God can give what we crave and send leanness into our souls, right? No, we must value serving God faithfully above any appearance of success while doing otherwise. And thirdly, there's a warning against resisting conviction by the word. And you might say, this is most urgent of all, because the Bible says that there is no one who does not sin. But then the question is, do we uh, get angry when our faults are exposed? Uh, do we harden ourselves to the message? Do we resent it or resent uh, the messenger as Asa did? He imprisoned the prophet. Whoever covers his sin shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And we need to remember also that any rejection of the convicting word of God is a rejection of the comforting word of God. We can't have one without the other. They always go together. When we receive God's word of, of repute, re, reproof or rebuke, and it works in our hearts, humility and repentance, then that same word ministers comfort to us and strength and renewal. And we want to value both of these things. We need to uh, trust in the Lord. 
And then fourthly, there's a warning against misplaced trust. And again, this is a kind of a broad theme that uh, really is behind all these failings. But this in connection with uh, the fact that Asa put his trust in doctors instead of the Lord. And again, we already emphasize the importance of that, that word instead of the Lord. Consulting the physicians was his alternative to seeking the Lord. And this reminds us that this, this, uh, is a sin that involves the matter of the heart, huh? Not, not always outward actions, but our attitudes, the way we think about things. People outwardly can do very much the same thing. One person might, uh, invest his money in what he considers to be a, a reasonable, stewardly, responsible way of caring for his, himself or his family for the future. And another man might invest his money in a way that he thinks is a responsible way to increase his wealth and care for his family and look after his future. Or one man might uh, send his children to Christian school. And another man might send his children to Christian school. One man might, I use the word men in the generic sense, a man or woman might uh, take advantage of prescription pills to relieve physical distress or pain or mental distress or pain. And another might do exactly the same thing. And yet there might be a profound difference in each of these cases. Because on the one hand, you have the man or woman who, while they take these steps, they acknowledge God. They confess that they depend upon His blessing for their uh, security in the future. They acknowledge that God is the healer. He is the one who heals all our diseases. They acknowledge that God must work in the hearts of our children. And He must bless those means. And we don't trust in them. We trust in God in our use of the means. And you see, that can make all the difference in the world. That can make all the difference between uh, peace on the one hand or anxiety and fear on the other. It can make all the difference in the world between honoring the Lord on the one hand or not. Basically neglecting to glorify Him in the practical areas of our life by trusting in Him. It can make the difference between God's blessing upon those means or not. You see the difference there. We must trust in the Lord in all our ways. Acknowledge Him. That's what Asa failed to do. We want to take warning from that. And we want to cling to God's grace. In closing, we consider the fact that God's purpose of grace does not fail. And we can see that in two main ways here. For one thing, we can see God's grace to Asa and through Asa. Yes, the inspired record includes his failures. But we need to be clear on the fact that this does not cancel the good God did to him and the good that God did through him. And this does not cancel or nullify the inspired verdict that God makes on Asa's life and reign. We've heard that. And chapter 16 doesn't change what was said in chapter 
14 and 15. Remember chapter 14. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. That is a summary statement of his reign. It's a characteristic description of godly kings in contrast to the characteristic description of ungodly kings who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And his failures do not rule out the fact that the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. Nevertheless, despite the fact that the high places weren't removed, and God's verdict stands, and we dare not draw any conclusion to the contrary. Rather, let us be moved and let us be humbled and comforted by the great love and mercy of God revealed in such passages. We might also think of First of Kings chapter 14, verse 8, where it says to Jeroboam, it enumerates his failures. And then it says, And yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. And we think, wow, well, we know some areas in which... David hardly did what was right in God's eyes, and he broke some commandments. But it's as if God in his grace just covers over that. Oh, yeah, we know that. But his heart was upright. He was loyal to the Lord. And one of the ways in which that was demonstrated in David was his repentance. God's love and mercy is shown despite serious failures. Isn't that his covenant faithfulness that is that is promised in, in Psalm 89? Psalm 89, verses 28, in God's covenant with with David, he says, My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. And ultimately, the fullness of that meaning can only uh, apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that is perfect in its accomplishment. And all those who believe in him are justified. For all the sins that they've committed, their standing with God is in Christ, secure in his righteousness, secure in his shed blood that forgives all our sins. But the application of that redemption with respect to sanctification is incomplete in this life. And it will be incomplete until Christ comes again and we are fully uh, sanctified in our glorification. And this teaches us charity towards others. <laughs> charity towards the, the manifest faults of brothers and sisters in the faith. And care. It's interesting that uh, Asa was given a very honorable burial. They buried him in his own tomb. They laid on him, laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients prepared and a mixture of ointments. They made a very great burning for him. That's a testimony to the to the high esteem and respect with which this king was held also. 
in Judah. So there is God's grace uh, to Asa and through Asa. And then there is God's grace yet to be revealed. I've already alluded to that. But Asa was God's anointed. And he had a unique role in redemptive history. And that is that as a son of David, he was called to foreshadow the Christ. The Christ who had come from his own literal descendants. And his loyalty and the good things of his reign gives us a dim, it's a dim picture, but it's a picture of the kind of king God would provide for his people that was absolutely loyal to him in every respect, who perfectly obeyed his commandments, who loved him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and every thought, word, and deed, and became our righteousness as God's provision of a savior king who also is a priest who gave himself for us. And so while Asa's loyalty gives us a dim preview, his faults show us a great contrast and a great necessity for just such a king to be our savior, to be our righteousness and our deliverance, which will appear in perfection, right? There is a salvation yet to be revealed when Christ comes. And we live, and we hope, we sin, we repent, we long for the perfection of that deliverance that is yet to come. And brothers and sisters, with respect to this matter of self-examination, this is point number one. To examine ourselves, whether we place our trust in Christ alone. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care what kind of reputation you have. I don't care if you know in your heart that you're unbelieving and ungodly and you're afraid to die. It's not like you have to achieve some kind of record of goodness in order to then be accepted with God. You must only come to Christ in the recognition of your absolute need for forgiveness and for new life in Him. And He'll receive you. Place all your trust in Him. He'll forgive you. He'll accept you. He'll go to work on you. And so that main point of, of self-examination is this right here. Have I trusted in the Savior? Am I continuing to trust in Him? Despite my failings, my confidence is in him. That actually motivates me to repent. Because repentance is not some uh, slavish work that I do in the hope that it will be sufficient enough to merit forgiveness. No, repentance is a return continually to the riches of God's grace and a desire to live according to that. Amen.